Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Sean Taylor. Sean is a staff data scientist at Lyft working on Rideshare Labs. Sean, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. Happy to be here. I'm super excited to chat with you. It's been a long time in the works and really looking forward to our conversation. I like to get these interviews started by having you share a bit about your background and introduce yourself to our community. How'd you get started working in data science? Yeah, thrilled to be here. Always fun to like reminisce about how you ended up where you got. <laughs> Sometimes when I think about the journey to being a data scientist, it goes all the way back to like college and working on real estate research with a professor I used to work with at Penn and getting into like geospatial data there. There's a long process since then. And probably the most pivotal thing was working in grad school on large scale experimentations. My grad school program, I was studying, I was studying to be a social scientist and study how people influence their friends online really around this era of big data and people getting really interested in Hadoop and Hive and running large-scale experiments. And I got very lucky and got an internship at Facebook as a 30-year-old intern at Facebook. So sort of like like that movie, The Interns. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got a great set of mentors at Facebook. Dean Eccles and, and Eitan Bakshi were awesome. And they, they taught me everything I needed to know about being a data scientist at Facebook and then decided to stick around and stay. So I was a data scientist at Facebook for about seven years. And then about two years ago, switched over to Lyft, where I started working on marketplace experimentation and other kinds of stuff that Lyft has a very different set of problems than Facebook. But you can trace that journey all the way back 20 years if you want to, or maybe just 10, but it's still ending up to be a lot of time at this point. <laughs> Feeling old. Nice, nice. Um, so tell us a little bit about Rideshare Labs. What's the, what's the mission there? Yeah, that's a great question. For a company like Lyft, there's often things are broken into products and products have a roadmap. So you'll have sort of like we have uh, teams that run certain algorithms like our pricing algorithm or dispatch algorithm, um, ETA prediction, and even the product itself, like the driver side of the app, the rider side of the app. A product roadmap has to be very reliable. You have to sort of deliver progress on a certain time schedule so that you can meet your business requirements. But you'd also like to try newer and more innovative things. So carving out some time and space for scientists to work on ideas that might not really pan out. And if they were sort of like, if they were, they're big bets, but if you don't want to bet your whole company on them, so we can kind of incubate them within labs and try things that have a maybe under 50% or under 25% hit rate. But when they do hit, we get a big boost out of them. So we'd, we'd like to create that space for scientists to do that. And we have an engineering team as well that helps us implement those ideas and, and get them into practice. And then the playbook is really to get, go and then take the thing that we work on and get it into production and then do some kind of handoff to a production team that can kind of take the thing that we, that we built and run it in production. So we create that space for innovation within the company. Nice. And until recently, you had a more of a managerial role on that team and you kind of swap jobs, it, it sounds like, <laughs> with, with someone to, to get more hands-on. I'd love to hear more about the story there, the the motivation. It's not something you see a lot of. Yeah, it, it is an unusual move, and people have asked me quite a bit about it. I, I think it, I was very lucky. So number one, lucky to get the job in the first place. So I, I wasn't sort of hired to be head of Rideshare Labs at Lyft, but I, I took the role last summer after a departure with the, the, the current manager of the team. And so I, I sort of took on this new role of trying to 
plan research and coordinate research for a large team. We have about 13 people on labs. And it's a very different job, right? So when you, you know, you're not doing a lot of hands-on science work anymore, you're just sort of helping people get unblocked and make sure that they have what they need to be great researchers and do excellent work. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I think the, the mentorship side of things and where you get to see people really thrive and build awesome stuff and you get to come along for the ride with what they're doing. But I, I had the itch to just do some more hands-on work myself. And I think it's really hard to scratch that itch from a managerial role. Your, your time gets real. There's a, you know, the Paul Graham essay, the, the maker schedule and the manager schedule. It's yeah. very, very true. You get a lot of your time just sort of like eaten up by things that are really great, but they don't allow you to accumulate progress on projects. So I got very lucky that there's this guy, Nick Chalmandy, who's a really excellent manager at Lyft. He's been there a long time and he was willing to kind of step in and take on the director role. And he's uh, he took on a lot of my management responsibility. And now I, I have a little bit of space to go and work on some of those ideas that have been kind of piling up in my brain for the last few months. That's awesome. Is there any particular experience in your background or example that gave you the, I don't know, courage, for lack of a better word, to kind of make that leap to, well, first, to know exactly what it was that you wanted and, and second, to make it happen? Well, I think um, I'm a big experimentation person, and I think that that's a really important part of my philosophy, both in business and in life. So tr trying new things is really important. You you'll never learn if you, if you like something unless you try it. Same thing with foods as, as it is with careers. So you have, to, you have to experiment a little bit. So I have a bias toward action and trying new things. So that was one part of it. The other part was just having like a supportive company that would help facilitate something like that. So I think in general, it's pretty tough to shed responsibility at a big company. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty tough to find people that really want to take on stuff that you've been doing and that the unglamorous stuff so that you can go and do the fun stuff. But I was lucky to be able to fill that gap. And so, yeah, th those two things combined, my, the experimental mindset. And also the thing that's been coming to mind a lot lately is there's this book called Flow. I talk to people about it all the time. Mm -hmm. I think getting into a flow state is like really like something that you should try to make your work facilitate. And so I really want to get back to doing stuff where I kind of like lose track of time and uh, are able to kind of like make big progress on projects in, with, with a little bit of time and space. So creating that space for myself became a big, big priority. Yeah. At the risk of turning this into a productivity podcast and not like <laughs> learning podcast, I'm curious if you've also read Deep Work and how you compare flow and deep work. Oh, no, I haven't. I haven't read Deep Work yet. I, I have another Cal Newport book, the, you know, what is it? The End of Email or Death of Email. Uh -huh. that I've, I've been kind of paging through and I, I love all these ideas. I do think that we've we've really kind of made a very distraction filled environment for ourselves as yeah. workers. And, and it's particularly for the kind of work that we do in data science. It really requires kind of sustained attention. Some problems you just you really can't make any progress on unless you can make the space, both in terms of time and mental space for them. So it's it's a big goal for me personally. It's a big goal for me as a manager when I manage people to make sure that they have that space. I, I even go through that. There's like these preconditions for flow state in the flow book. And you can kind of apply that as a management philosophy. Like, are, are the people on my team able to get into a flow state? What kind of distractions are blocking them from making progress and doing that? So I, I think it's just like a, a really important part of being an effective scientist and, and researcher. Nice, nice. So you mentioned experimentation and how core that is to your philosophy. I think anyone who follows you on Twitter and folks should knows that you're very excited about stats and you have maybe more of a stats oriented, experimentational oriented bent than other some other folks in the ML, at least the ML Twitter sphere. I'd love to hear you riff on that orientation and how you think about the relationship between stats and your work and ML and AI. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question to reflect on. I have kind of branded myself as a statistician, and I like hanging out with the statisticians because there's a really like old lineage of ideas there to lean on all the way back to like Fisher and his work on experimentation. And then you have sort of like Savage is one of the original statisticians. And when he was thinking about statistics, he was thinking about decision problems at its core. So how do we, how do we make more effective decisions? How do we as humans make decisions optimally? How would we as a business or someone working in agriculture, in the case of Fisher, make better decisions. And I really like that pragmatism of statistics, sort of like geared toward a particular application and having some uh, some real world problem that you really want to solve. And that's sort of like the way that I think about AI and machine learning and statistics. They are tools that we use to make something work better, you know, achieve some new capability. And that there's a long tradition in statistics of that. doesn't mean that I'm like a really rigorous statistician. In fact, I think I'm not really good enough at math to be one of them, but <laughs> But there's a lot of great ideas to be borrowed from from that old tradition that are we're, we're constantly reinventing and that we don't really need to. You can go back and read these old papers and they have all the same all the same wisdom in, in them that you can read about today. Just maybe we call the methods different things and they're more flexible and more scalable and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, we're really trying to solve pretty similar problems to, to stuff that people have been trying to solve for hundreds of years. Nice, nice. I'd love to jump into some of the things that you're working on there at Lyft. I know one of the things that you are involved in is the forecasting effort there. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? That's Yeah, I, I, I continue to be branded as a forecasting person. Just, you, you know, you write one lousy forecasting package and everybody <laughs> wants you to work on forecasting. <laughs> forever. But it, it is a really interesting problem because I, I think forecasting is at its core is a really human-centered modeling problem because they're often consumed by humans. So people look at forecasts, they have some intuition for what they should look like, and they really want to use them to make better decisions. So coming up with a, like a flexible system where that ultimately a forecast has to be a human-in-the-loop decision-making system to be effective. Humans have to help inject domain knowledge into forecasts by making them better through what they might know about what's likely to happen in the future. So that's an interesting part to get right. And then using the forecasted information to make a better decision and closing the loop. And that's another sort of human in the loop piece to it. So at Lyft, what we frequently need to do is plan our market management. So there's a supply side to Lyft, which is drivers showing up and using the app to provide driver hours to the marketplace. And then we have the demand side, which are people requesting rides. And these two things can get out of balance pretty easily. We grow driver pool too quickly and we have too many drivers. That could be bad. They wouldn't really earn very much money per hour if, if there were too many drivers on the road. And likewise, like, you know, over-demanded situations, we have too much demand and not enough drivers are, are pretty disastrous. If you ever opened up the Lyft app and you've seen like a 25-minute wait time or something like that, it just means that we did a bad job at planning how many, uh, how many drivers we're going to need. But we have tools to address the market imbalance and sort of can spend money on incentives on the supply side or the demand side of the market. And so the forecasts become really pivotal in deciding how we do that. So we have to set these real number policy variables every week and actually every hour. And and we'd like to be able to plan that in advance and make plans to do a better job of it. And so the planning really revolves around having a good forecast of our demand and supply state in the future. One of the really interesting bits about demand and supply is that we have control over those variables. So they're not just pure exogenous variables that we'd like to forecast, like the weather. We have to forecast like not only what will happen if we don't do something, but what will happen if we do do something. So if we do something like raise prices, then people will demand fewer lifts, and so demand will go down. And so we have to sort of incorporate the effects of our previous decisions 
into the forecast. So there's there's really like a rich space of modeling problems just within forecasting. And it's really never going to be as simple as just take this line and extrapolate it into the future. And that, that's what's so exciting about it at Lyft. So we really have to we have to think about a system rather than just like any just a particular model. And when you think about incorporating in the potential decisions that you could make into your forecasts, how do you close that loop? Do you end up using simulation techniques or other types of techniques to do that? Yeah, it's a uh, our forecasting system is designed around causal models. So it's sort of unique in that way. So we think of it as a causal model where we have certain nodes in the graph that we control. So there's a, just like anybody who reads Pearl's books will see a DAG and, and think, oh, those are cool, but how do I use them? Well, we do use them at Lyft and we use them to model our business. And that the nodes that have no parents on them, the pure parent nodes are, are variables that we control. So things like price levels and how much we spend on driver incentives. And then there are nodes that are marketplace outcomes, the things that like happen. And there are other like nodes that are pure parents that we don't control. So things like just how many people would show up organically and request rides. So we have to sort of like do this business modeling in advance in order to create this set of models. And they're all linked together as one big structural model. So that's a pretty exciting thing to do is you kind of couple your forecasts together into a joint system. So they're all internally consistent with one another. So you have sort of like some of those variables are your policy variables and those the forecast for those is actually a plan. So when, you, when you're going to set those for future values, you can't forecast it. It's something that you're going to do. So you're going to fill in this vector of values with a plan. And then you say like, okay, under this plan, what would happen to these other variables? The really exciting thing that, that's happening these days is with differentiable programming, autograd everywhere means that we can kind of build a model that we can put a plan in and it will tell us what will happen. Or we can also just flip it on its head and say, well, we have an objective, just find me an optimal plan. And that's what I'm really excited about these days is that we can take a forecasting model and say like, the purpose of the forecasting model isn't to produce forecasts, it's to produce plans. And those mm-hmm. plans should help make some business objective happen. And so they really like translate directly into something actionable for the business rather than something that we'd have to sort of like derive what we're supposed to do based on the forecast. Are you using a particular kind of causal modeling set of tools that you build these apps in or have you kind of built up your own framework from the ground up? Yeah, I'm lucky to have a team that's very interested in tool building. So they, they have built a lot of the technology we needed to do this, but it's built on top of PyTorch. And so that, that was a kind of inter- interesting design decision we had to make early on, kind of like, wh- what are we going to build the models? In? And we wanted something really flexible and that had Autograd built in. So we chose PyTorch. And we had to build a lot of scaffolding on top of that. So how do the models link together in some holistic system? So we built sort of a way to stitch together a DAG of many models that's composable and that can admit sort of like a joint training or training of individual level models. And then on the causal side, actually, the hard part there is is coming up with old, like prior experimental evidence for the causal effects of things. So how do we know what the effect of a price change will be on demand? The best way to do that is actually find historical times when we've changed prices and go and try to figure out what happened in in those circumstances. Because we can't just use the data under no price changes to estimate that. So really a lot of the the hard part of the model was finding all the evidence that we needed to estimate the slopes of different curves that are kind of like important to the counterfactual predictions that the model makes. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the task of building a model like this is building up business knowledge about what people have done in the past, (laughs) what prior experiments have been run, what interventions have we done historically. And it ends up looking a little bit like macroeconomics. You go and hang out with macroeconomists for a while. They're obsessed with history because the historical data provides the natural experiments that they need to understand what's going to happen in the future. So like when we think about 
what's going to happen in a recession. Well, the easiest way to figure out what's going to happen is go find historical recessions and try to see what was common about them. So we apply a kind of a similar lens to that problem. So I, this question may be, you know, I, I may be asking a question that you just answered, but when you think about applying causal models into the types of forecasting that you're doing, I'm imagining that you have to dramatically kind of simplify the the model. Yes. And, you know, it can't be so robust that it's taking into effect all of the actual causal relationships in the thing that you're actually modeling. And so I'm wondering, like, the interface, I guess the thing that I'm thinking of is, like, leaky abstractions. Like, yeah. do you, you know, how does that manifest in trying to use causal models in a, a real-world scenario like this? Yeah, I, I love that question um, because I think it's the hard part. And <laughs> it's what I've been telling my team for we've been working on this for about two years now, is that we're not building a model, we're building a system for building models that's going to evolve mm-hmm. over time to help us like make agile adjustments to the way the business runs or to or as we have new information. So really, we don't. our goal isn't to build like the best model in the world. Our goal is to be agile and to create sort of a modeling framework that allows us to get good at making models better, which is really kind of the goal of, I think most teams that are building models really are thinking a lot about this loop of like, proposing new idea, testing it very quickly, and then folding in the things that work well into your system quickly. And so we, we really would like to get good at that. So the, the core piece of that is model checking or Bayesians call it like model checking procedures. And validating a model and saying whether it's better or worse than your old one is really probably the hardest part of being a machine learning researcher or a statistician in general. It's like when, when do you have a model that's better than your old one? It turns out for our models, since they're so much based on business knowledge, that really that's a that's a piece where the human in the loop is very useful. People can inspect the output of the model and say, like, this doesn't make sense to me. And that's that's actually very useful information. So what we're really trying to think hard about right now is what visualizations and plots and diagnostics can we create very quickly from fitted models that we can show to people that maybe don't even know how the model works or how it's fit, but, but that they can understand and say, like, this doesn't look realistic to me. And that's, that's important not only to improve the model, but also because that building trust with those people who like ultimately are responsible for the decisions that the model makes is sort of like of first order importance. If they, don't, if they don't trust the model, they don't believe it, they'll sort of ignore it and not make decisions using it. So one of the big pillars for our team for a long time, we called it trust and understanding. Like, do people trust this model enough to start betting money on it is really where we'd like to get. And to get them there, you really need to show them a lot of plots. It's kind of the takeaway there. And we've had to be very agile and modify the model a lot. So it's sort of like uh, become, this, it feels, it can feel Sisyphusian if you think of it as like, oh, there's some ultimate, ultimate goal. But really, at the end of the day, you're trying to build a good process. And that's, that's what we've been focused on. Uh, in theory, using causal modeling techniques should provide a level of trust or understanding kind of built in, or that's what's written on the tin. That's what a lot of people are excited about causal models for nowadays. It sounds like, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done though. I think that the hardest part isn't the modeling and fitting models. It's, it's actually like quite easy and straightforward to do that. What you're really rate limited by is how many interventions that you've had historically. So this is sort of like why macroeconomics is hard. It's like, what's going to happen in a recession? Well, we've only had like three or four recessions in the last 30, 40 years. So there's not a lot of like examples to draw on. So your, your sample size is very limited for interventional data inherently, especially like system-wide interventional data. Now, when you zoom into like individual level policies, like a user, user level randomization at an experiment, or, or a, we do like time split randomizations at Lyft, those are cases where you can get very precise causal knowledge. You can estimate effects very precisely. But for these like 
system level estimates you really are sort of limited by the available history that you have and what you've done in the past. If, if you've been very experimental in the past and tried a lot of things, maybe you have the ability to get some more traction on the problem. But yeah, we, we need to become better experiment designers and, and ultimately be more experimental to make causal models better. Mm-hmm. And do you use causal models more broadly than in forecasting there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think every model is a causal model, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, it should, or maybe they should be, at least it's a very strong perspective, but in a business setting, you're almost always trying to make a decision differently. And if you don't make a decision differently, then you didn't really have any effect on the business. So models are ultimately meant to sort of drive some decision-making, either a very micro-level decision, like for us, which driver will we dispatch to you as a rider, given that you request a ride, is a decision that we make. And there are counterfactuals around that decision. Well, we could have dispatched this other driver or this other driver. We have, Or we could just not dispatch a driver at all because we don't have enough of them and we need to allocate them in a scarce way. Those are all causal questions. And so that's a very micro-level decision. And then I was talking about like zoomed out macro-level decisions about spending money at like a weekly level of granularity on some incentives. They're both causal questions and they ultimately kind of like either it's an automated system that's going to do these things on an ongoing basis without a human in the loop or it's a more sort of like fuzzy business process where there's some human in the loop. But either way, you sort of like would like to know what would happen if you did something differently. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you're also involved in efforts around marketplace experimentation there. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting and challenging parts of a marketplace like Lyft is that it's very difficult to know when when your business is functioning better because like if you look at something like revenue for Lyft, it's affected by both supply and demand. So we can have demand shocks that make us like a ton of revenue. We didn't do anything to cause that. Or drivers can show up in droves and we can have lots of drivers and everybody gets good experiences. And we didn't, we didn't have any control over that could just be like the macroeconomic factors. So, but ultimately like our business is the business of matching those things. So can we match supply and demand effectively and make really, really good micro decisions that add up to good experiences for the participants on both sides of the marketplace? And it's very difficult to know when you're doing a better job of that because there's just all this noise. And so the thing that we can do to improve the decision-making there is to build better models of how the marketplace functions that allow us to kind of like partial out the noise, denoise the signal that's being kind of transmitted. So ultimately what we want to do is try new algorithms in production. So try new ways of matching riders to drivers and then be able to detect if that's a better outcome for the marketplace or not. And so the way that we try things is through what we call time split tests. So we'll sort of switch algorithms. Other people in the industry call these switchback tests where you sort of switch algorithms on and off at random intervals and try to see what happens on the borderline. So when we switch from one to the other, you get this nice little experiment of like the system just changes state and it can do better in the next hour than it did in the prior hour. And our, our job as statisticians is to be good at detecting that. So how can we figure out if it really was better? And it's the idea of doing the switchback tests as opposed to the more traditional A-B tests that, or sequential testing that you really, the, the granularity of distribution shifts is so small, you kind of have to do them very quickly and, and kind of in parallel. Yeah, I think it's slightly more complicated in that we have the problem of interference. So it's, it's not just the granularity of the intervention. It's that if we gave 50% of users like a big discount, then they would soak up all the drivers. And then these other users who are in the other condition would have fewer drivers available. So there are all these spillovers mm-hmm. in marketplaces that cause the treatment that you've applied to some users or some drivers to spill over to the other ones. So you think about ultimately experimentation is a prediction problem in a way, just trying to predict what would happen in a counterfactual world where everybody in the whole marketplace was sort of living in a world with our new algorithms. 
And the best way to do that is just to do it. <laughs> so, so that's what a time split test kind of acknowledges is that maybe the best way to test something is just to try it out and see. But you, you need to have a rigorous experimental design in order to get detectability there. So we are working on finer grain versions of that where it's a little bit more zoomed in. Maybe we can say circumscribe some time and space and give treatments in a little bit more of a precise way. But it needs to be more coarse than a user level randomization in order to get something like more faithful to what we really care about. And when you talk about experimental design there and and the need to be rigorous there, is that something that is human in a loop hand done for every new experiment? Or have you kind of platformized some of this so that you can do some of that in an automated way? Yeah, these are these are great questions, Sam. I wish it it almost sounds like I wrote these. <laughs> I I think like one of my big philosophies is that we should be, always be running more experiments than we are. And I, I tell people that all the time. We're not running enough experiments. We should be running more of them. And you think about what what are the bottlenecks to running experiments? It really is the human is the bottleneck because we need humans to set them up and plan them, and then we need humans to analyze them and decide what to do. <laughs> and you can cut the human out of the loop for both of those steps if you really want to, but it's hard. On the planning side, it involves sort of making experiments into changes in configuration instead of code. So a typical A-B test is like an engineer writes some new code and you have some like if statement in the code that changes. That's something that an engineer has to set up in order for it to be something that you can test. But if you if you create a configuration-based system, which is sort of more common at Facebook than it is at Lyft, but it's sort of like engineers like to switch things into configuration when they can, then all the parameters in your configuration file are just are experiments waiting to happen. They're, they're just numbers or, or categorical variables that you'd like to maybe try out sometime. So it's possible to generate ideas for experiments using machine learning. And Bayesian optimization is one approach for doing this, where you sort of like would like to try out parameters that you are most uncertain about how they'll perform in, in an online test. Then to close the loop on the other side, how do you get a machine to decide whether you should launch an experiment or not? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this is also a huge bottleneck. And I think ultimately it boils down to that. It's very difficult to get people to agree on what the objective of tests are in general. So like, what would success look like? And is is there just like one variable that we could use to decide whether this is successful or not? And it turns out that the answer is often not. There's usually some trade offs involved. More of one thing is good, more of another thing is good, but they sort of like more of one thing makes the other thing go down. And at Lyft, we have like a very clear set of trade-offs. There's usually like a, things that improve the driver side of the market or the rider side of the market. There's things that improve like Lyft's profitability, but not for our riders and drivers. And then there's sort of like a short-term and long-term set of trade-offs, like a more of a greedy set of outcomes or a long-term set of outcomes. So but getting folks to agree on like what you're, what Ronnie Kohavi at formerly at Microsoft and then Airbnb it's like a guru of experimentation calls an overall valuation criteria. So if you have that number and you can p- compute it for every experiment, then you can really just, then the loop, loop is closed and the system can propose new experiments and then launch the ones that are good. And that's really what you see with like approaches like multi-arm bandits or fully full Bayesian optimization type approaches. They're hard to get right, but if you do get them right, then you can run a lot of experiments. <laughs> nice, nice. From the sounds of it, your experimentation metrics are at least the ones you've thrown out, sound like business metrics as opposed to model metrics. Has it been easier to drive business metrics, to to drive model development around business metrics with the class of models that you're using with these calls and models as opposed to deep learning or some other type of technique? Or is it just a discipline that you as a team have just committed to? So the the forecasting and planning side really resists experimentation in a lot of ways. So those models are hard to evaluate offline and they're hard to evaluate online. (laughs) 
Mm. So, uh, and we, we do have approaches for doing that. And we, d- we do things like simulated back tests and things like that to try to see if the predictive performance of the model, the statistical performance of the model translates into better decisions. And we have ways of doing that. And I think it sort of makes the model more faithful to the goal that it was originally designed for. I think that we would love to have much fancier models with better architectures and more bells and whistles. I don't want to engage in like building fancier models just for fancier models. I'd like to do it in purpose of a specific task. So until until you're very, very good at translating some offline performance metric into some online performance metric, I think it's kind of dangerous to focus only on offline metrics. So achieving that concordance between like, I know that my way of evaluating the model offline translates into better business value. Once you have that feedback loop tight, then I think it's like, okay, let's do a total free-for-all on the modeling. This is a a little bit of a different perspective than I think a lot of people propose because they gravitate toward these offline metrics that can be measured very precisely and get really excited about improving them. But I I think the burden of proof is on you as as a scientist to like to show that that translates into some value in a, in a way that like other people believe and not just like that is consistent with your model. Mm-hmm. With the marketplace experimentation, one of your inputs or a couple of your inputs, I would imagine, are the forecasted supply and demand that go into the marketplace. Are, are there particular challenges associated with hierarchical models in that kind of environment? Yeah, I think like Lyft's data is is really fascinating in its structure, and it has a lot of structure that really resists efficient modeling a lot of the time. So we have sort of like a spatiotemporal process. Let's take demand for instance, and I think it's a it's pretty illustrative of the problems that we have. Demand is a point process, so people pick up an app and make a request for a ride or just check the price. And so we have a sort of like latitude and a longitude and a timestamp, and that's a unit of of demand. Now, let's say we wanted to forecast that. There's a lot of different ways to do it. The, the simplest one and the one that's most common is to is to like aggregate it into counts in some time and space buckets and then use a traditional time series model. But you might also reasonably think about that as like, I would just like to be able to predict the density or like the rate of arrival of these points in time and space. And, and then I could like aggregate up the forecast to whatever level that I want. And so there's this like bias variance trade-off of this this whole spectrum of methods like bucketing, how do you choose your buckets? So if we choose time buckets or space buckets in various ways, then we get different bias variance trade-offs. If you use a regular grid on lift data, it will work terribly. So there's a there's a temptation to do things like image type models where you have like pixels. Most of those pixels are empty. And so you're just sort of like mm-hmm. using a very wasteful representation of the data. And then same same thing for time. Like there's like many hours through the middle of the night where there's just not a lot of activity in the marketplace. So there's a lot of zeros. And so your model is not really able to do much with that. So ideally, we'd have a forecasting system that can give consistent forecasts at all levels of granularity. Like if I, if I forecast at a very fine level and I add it up, then I would get something the same as if I did the, the very high level forecast. Still a very open-ended research problem for us. I think we're still trying to get this right. But that degree of coordination would be really excellent for us because it would allow us sort of like the micro level marketplace algorithms to be making their decisions based on the same information that we're using for more macro level decisions and have those two things be consistent. So I hope that we can get there someday, but it, it really is sort of a challenging modeling problem because it has this multi-resolution quality to it in both time and space. Mm-hmm. A moment ago, you alluded to kind of the tension between simple models and more complex models. Uh, You are doing some experimentation with neural networks for fine-grained decision-making. Can you tell us a little bit about those efforts? 
Yeah, I think um, there's a really rich tradition at Lyft of using tools like LightGBM or XGBoost to solve problems because th- those are like really great hammers to hit data with. It's sort of like they always they work very well without a lot of parameter tuning, and they work really reliably in production. And so there's been a gradual sort of process of of trying to figure out like could neural networks help us and could they do better. And I think the answer has been that they typically don't do that much better in predictive performance than than tree-based models, sort of like we might get something that might be a little bit better, but maybe not worth all the extra headache of changing things. But the neural networks have a couple of uh, really big advantages. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a big one is flexibility. So we can change the loss function on a neural network very easily to be something else. So like the link link function at the end, we can make it so it's going to predict count variables. It could be like, it's very easy to swap in different loss functions. You can do that with trees too, but it's it's more challenging. Another one is to predict multiple outcomes at the same time. So like a ride request could turn into many different outcomes. It could turn into the rider could cancel, the driver could cancel, um, it can turn into it can turn to a ride, it could turn to a report. Maybe we want to build a model that pulls all those outcomes into a single vector valued outcome. And then we can kind of build a shared representation that helps us leverage like it's like a transfer learning idea. Some of those outcomes are sparser than others. And so by pulling them into the same model, we can do better. That's a very natural idea in neural networks that's, for, that's actually quite difficult to implement in tree-based models. And then the other kind of hidden advantage of neural networks is this, the scalability. They actually train a lot faster and we can do much larger scale than we can with trees. And so I think the hope is that we'll be able to eventually sort of like train models that for our entire marketplace in, in one model, rather than having like region-specific models, and that would be facilitated through the ability to kind of like put everything into the same modeling architecture all at once. So I'm very excited about that future, and we're on our way there. We're already seeing really promising results, particularly for things like heterogeneous treatment effect models, where it's sort of like there's just some newer technology that allows us to do that. What's an example of a heterogeneous treatment effect model? Yeah, great question. It's sort of like, uh, (laughs) this is causal inference jargon that I take for granted. So in causal inference, everybody's concerned with treatment effects. It's like a single binary treatment would be like, you take a pill and does it work or not? Would be the average treatment effect would be average over the population. Heterogeneous treatment effect says, hey, hey, maybe that pill works better for some people than for others. And we like the machine learning model to give us some idea for whom it will have stronger treatment effects. And if you think about this as a labeled data problem, it doesn't work because I would like to take a vector for you and predict an effect. And I'll never observe you getting the treatment and not getting the treatment. So I can't actually estimate a per observation treatment effects. And so you have to use a kind of interesting architecture to do that. But then once you do, you get this very powerful model where it uses all the available features to try to explain heterogeneity in the response to the treatments that you have. So treatments for us might be things like coupons or discounts for riders or incentives for drivers. And so by kind of like putting those into models and letting the models tell us about how the response to that treatment might vary, we can do a better job of figuring out like which people are going to benefit the most from different treatments that we can use. Nice. It sounds in some ways analogous to the idea of getting the plan out of your forecasting models instead of the forecast itself. Yeah, I do think that that's a big theme of my last couple of years is thinking about models as not returning predictions, but as returning decisions. Mm-hmm. And it, it creates a sort of like end to end way of thinking about machine learning is really like the part in the middle where you have an estimate or a prediction is, is a nuisance to the system, right? Like an automated system doesn't need to know that there was like some estimate of something. It just needs to know like, what am I supposed to do in the code? Who am I supposed to give this treatment to? Or which rider is supposed to be matched with which driver? Uh, doesn't care about some estimate that happened along the way. And I don't know if we'll get there anytime soon, but really the, the layer of human interpretability within these models is a little bit of like a, something that we just have as like vestigially for a little while until 
maybe we'll end up with like some more end-to-end systems in the long run. Nice, nice. I'd love to close this out by having you talk a little bit about the role of Rideshare Labs relative to classical Lyft data science. Just listening to you speak, it sounds like a lot of the stuff that you're doing is practical today work that's, you know, <laughs> impacting the short term of the business as opposed to your traditional labs, which is, you know, pursuing these moonshots that may or may not materialize. How do you think about that relationship? Yeah, that's a, I, lo- I love that question. It is a, these are moonshots. The problems themselves are the same as the teams themselves that are working on them. And we, we partner with them quite closely. So we're always working with teams that are actually doing real work and working on actual day-to-day problems. So we have this kind of collaborative model. But the moonshot part of it is that the, we're, not, we're not sure that the methods for solving those problems are going to work yet. So we have a known working solution that we can pursue sort of like small gradient steps toward improving. But if we want to take a jump in design space to a different solution, then we need to incubate that somehow. So that, like the move from trees to neural networks for these systems is something that takes months to implement. And it's not something that a product team really would probably ever prioritize because it would just detract from getting some more immediate business value. So I think the problems stay the same. What we're trying to do is kind of like mine the field for new solutions and things like going to conferences and reading, reading all the latest research and saying, hey, how does this apply to our business? Is there an idea here that like really could be a big step function improvement in how we do things? And if it could be that, then it's our job to be experimental and try those things out in a kind of like limited risk setting. And so that's kind of my, my big idea about what the role of a labs team would be. Awesome. And is there is there a result from a conference or paper or something like that that stands out as an example of that? Something that was from another area or or kind of orthogonal to what you're currently doing, but um, you had really interesting results trying to apply it? Yeah, I mean, the that heterogeneous Truman effect modeling idea, I didn't come up with that. We, I mean, what is it? Good artists copy, great artists steal. <laughs> Yeah. It's the same thing with scientists. Uh, that's uh, Claudia Shi and Victor Veitch and David Bly had this paper. It's called DragonNet. And so you can go and read that paper. And it's got a really great idea for a neural network architecture that can estimate heterogeneous treatment effects. And I saw the paper and you can see the, the diagram for the neural network architecture. And we're like, wow, this is a great, it's a great idea. They already had code available online. So we can go and like try that out on our data. And that's been sort of like an ongoing process of trying to figure out if we can do better than our kind of existing methodology and when and where it works better. So yeah, so I think we we borrow very liberally. And I think that that's actually the really fun part right now. So everybody's inventing all kinds of new stuff. So it's fun to, it's fun to be someone who borrows and steals. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. It's been wonderful catching up with you. Yeah, thanks, Sam, for having me. This is this is super fun. Great questions. Looking forward to the next time. Thank you. All right. See ya. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.